Now together open God's holy word. And we're going to be reading three passages. The first two are from the end of the book of Job. So we're going to go to Job. We'll read chapter 40, the verses 1 to 14. And then from chapter 42, we'll read the verses 1 through 9. And after that, we'll turn to the letter of Paul to the Philippians. And we'll read chapter 4, the verses 4 to 13. And after the reading of God's word, let us sing together from Psalm 37, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. So first of all, then, we turn to Job 40. You know, after all the conversation between Job and his friends, and then the Lord finally had begun to speak to, to Job in chapter 38. And that conversation, that communication also continues. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowing of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Let's turn to chapter 42. Let me read the verses 1 through 9. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. 
For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and so far the Amethite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. We turn now to Philippians 4. The verses 4 to 13. And here the Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Thus far, the scripture reading.
for the sermon this afternoon is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 131. A Song of Ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Lord, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. After the sermon, let us also sing the rhymed version of this psalm as we have it in our book of praise. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have before us as a text one of the songs of ascents. And as we think about those songs, it's commonly understood that these would be sung by the people of Israel as they would make their pilgrimages towards Jerusalem. You could say that these were traveling songs. And of course, when we think of it, the Old Testament people of Israel going to the physical Jerusalem, that's way different than our situation, but we are traveling to the heavenly Jerusalem. So for us also, these can be seen as traveling songs. Now as we speak about songs, you know, we think also that songs and singing can have different purposes when we do that as God's people. You could say that many of our songs have a vertical orientation as we are singing our praise to God, we're confessing our sins, we are asking for certain things. But our singing can also have a horizontal orientation where actually we are singing to each other. Kind of in accord with what the Apostle Paul also said, for example, in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, that yeah, we are to teach each other, we are to exhort each other, to admonish each other, to comfort each other. All these kinds of things are also important. Now, Psalm 131, as short as it may be, has both those elements. It has a vertical element where we are, you could say, speaking to God, but also a horizontal element where we are speaking to one another. But as we look at this psalm, we can notice that really it contains a confession of childlike faith, as well as an exhortation to childlike faith. The confession being vertical and the exhortation horizontal. And that we may learn to sing this psalm better, may sing it also with conviction, we will consider each of these two points in turn. So first, of course, we pay then to the confession of a childlike faith. And we should note that the way that the psalm comes across, this comes across in a, in a general way. When I say in a general way, I mean that 
we do not get any sense of the particular situation in which David would have written this particular psalm. That's good to keep in mind, eh, that no particular context, we shouldn't go looking for it. Sometimes when a psalm is kind of clearly written in a certain historical setting, the danger is always there that you get bogged down a little bit in the setting, rather than keeping in mind that it is a song about the situation. You know, look at, think for example of the next psalm, 132, which is a psalm about the promise of God to David, that one of his sons would sit upon his throne forever. But no, that's not the case here. And so when a, a song kind of comes across in a, in a general way, not tied to any particular situation, then it's actually also very helpful for us as believers today because it allows us to make a connection a lot quicker. So we can't say, yeah, but I don't connect to that historical situation. That's not even in, in play here. We can, we can connect with, you could say, the spiritual mindset that is being communicated and make the song our own. But now what is it in this psalm that, that is confessed that shows a childlike faith? Well, strange as it may sound, it is a confession about what is not being done. So we read in verse 1, My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Well, as we hear that, you know, it sounds like David is a bit repetitive, but here we have actually a typical feature of Hebrew poetry, kind of parallelism, where the same thing is said basically twice, but the second phrase elaborates and explains the first phrase. But that also intensifies that here David is communicating a childlike attitude, a humble, respectful attitude. Because if his heart is not lifted up, his eyes are not lifted up, that makes us think of the contrast that, you know, parents see that sometimes in their children. They can have very humble children, but sometimes children, they, they're kind of mad at mom and dad. And then, then when they look at mom and dad, they, there's kind of fire in their eyes. And when, the way they speak to their parents, there is an edge to it. And then, then indeed, mom and dad know they got a problem because here the child really is kind of arrogant, is kind of conceited, is going to take on mom and dad. That's not very good. Certain discipline measures have to be taken, but it's different from a child who, who speaks and reacts to mom and dad in a very respectful manner. That's very important for also a proper relationship. But here, David communicates now he is not like that defiant child that's going to take on his heavenly father. He's not going to lift up his heart, not going to lift up his eyes in any sense of defiance. Now here we see really what also typifies David's life. We know that he was childlike in his relationship to the Lord. Yes, he had his moment of weaknesses. He was not a perfect man. Still, that general attitude is childlikeness. Humbleness before God. He was called, you know, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart. It's also that childlike attitude that is called for by our Lord Jesus Christ when at one point he was interacting with his disciples. They were kind of discussing together who would have the most important position in the kingdom. And he put a child in its midst. In their midst. And he said, well, that is children. You have to be childlike. Become children again in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to go there with a defiance in your eyes, arguing with God. No, it is the childlike attitude that is so significant. Now, this confession of being childlike, though, is not finished. Because the second half of verse 1 
elaborates on the nature of being childlike again by confessing what is not done, namely not occupying oneself with things that are too great and too marvelous. Now, when you first read that, it almost might give the impression that the psalmist of David here is kind of communicating almost deliberate ignorance. But he's not going to bother thinking too much about things that are too difficult. It's not the case. No, the words used for great and marvelous things, they are used in different passages in the Old Testament to describe a variety of things. For example, God's dealings with his people. And we think of his great and marvelous deliverance of his people from the land of Egypt and entering into the promised land. It's also used with respect to God's testimonies and his laws. They are really wonderful. They're, they're beyond understanding. But it's also used with respect to God's acts of judgment, often again also followed by redemption. Now we think about the placing of this psalm among the psalms of ascent. What comes out here is especially that the reference there to God's acts of judgment and redemption as experienced by the people of Israel as they were in the promised land. For keep in mind, if you think of the whole drift of the line of thought in the Psalms of Ascent, you know, they were going to Jerusalem, but they weren't all, you could say, happy songs. No, there was a lot of sadness in those songs, a lot of crying to the Lord. Begins already with Psalm 120. Actually, a very sad song. I would suspect that if we would ask, can you recall ever singing Psalm 120? I would doubt it if anybody can I recall ever the minister having assigned that. But that, that's a sad song. And there's other songs with a lot of sadness. Psalm 129, a lot of sadness there too about all the hardship that had been experienced by God's people. And so there's a lot of pleading for deliverance. And then you have accounts of, of heavy oppression. Of course, also words of thanks for deliverance. So you could see when, when the people were traveling towards Jerusalem, it wasn't just happy songs they were singing, but they were singing about all the burdens, all the hardships that they had experienced over all the many centuries. And so, yes, there were cries of sadness and cries of help, help crying out to God, for help in their distress. Not understandable. But they would travel towards Jerusalem. That time was a time to reflect on the Lord's deliverance because, of course, when they were traveling, well, then they were having a peaceful time. If it was a time of hostility and war, they wouldn't have been able to leave their homes. It simply wasn't safe. So, yes, they had a time to, to give thanks, but also a time to reflect on the repeated hardships. And then they would also be able to think about that, that these things had happened to them despite God's wonderful promises. We think promise he had given to Abraham that they would become a, become a great and mighty nation. They would receive the promised land. They would inherit it. That They would receive also peace and prosperity. But that didn't always happen. There was a lot of misery. And so they would think now, we had these promises. 
Yes, God set us free from Egypt and we came to the promised land, but, but then you think, uh, yes, but, but now why, why have we had so many hardships? Not just even necessarily in their own life, but in their life collectively as the people of God. And so I need a question of why. Why did that happen? Why did the Lord allow his people to suffer so much? Now, of course, if they did a bit of reflection, they would have realized that some of it they had brought upon themselves because of their sin. The Lord allowed them to fall into the hands of their enemies to punish them. But there were also many times when it had been unprovoked. It had been unfair, you could say. The people had been living in obedience and faithfulness, and yet they were attacked by their many enemies. And so, so the question would be, Lord, when you've made these promises, when you're going to give us this beautiful land, why, why do all these things happen to us? It's something also that David would have known about very personally. You think about how he was anointed by the Lord to be the next king over Israel. But then if you think about David's life, he had this promise. You're going to receive the throne. And then here was Saul hunting him. And if you read the books of Samuel, you also begin to realize how often it seemed that Saul was going to capture him, that David was going to lose his life. Now, can you imagine that? David, at one time, sitting in the cave. Is he going to be discovered? And what if Saul gets me? I'm going to die. And yet the Lord promised, I'm going to become king. How, how does that work? How do all these pieces fit together? So, you see, in those situations, there comes a lot of doubt, a lot of uncertainty. And then, then you easily come into a situation, you can picture that well, that you begin to lose your trust in the Lord. But David confesses, also in this particular psalm, that he wasn't going to go there. He wasn't going to try and figure these things out, these things about God's judgments, his deliverance, his judgments, his hardships. He wasn't going to try and figure it out. He was resisting the proud and presumptuous attitude in which someone could say, well, God, how do you dare to do this to me? I don't deserve this. I don't have this coming to me. You shouldn't be doing these things. No, David says, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to be arrogant and face my heavenly Father and challenge him on these things. You see, and this is something that we can connect with also as believers. Believers have done this throughout the ages. Because if you think about how God has made so many beautiful promises, also to those who seek their salvation in Jesus Christ, so often the reality of life does not line up with those promises. And we think sometimes life doesn't seem fair. You know, I can take some other examples from Scripture. You think about a person like Joseph. You know, Joseph, he seemed to be maybe a bit of a, a favorite child, of course, but here he was mistreated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, and he was sold to slave traders. He ended up in Egypt. He ended up in prison at one point. We're never really told about Joseph's inner thoughts during the time. We know what he thought afterwards. He saw God's hand in it, but you can almost think of Joseph. If he really reflected on it, now why? Why are these things happening to me? Now, while we don't know Joseph's inner thoughts, we do know Job's thoughts. Job had a lot of questions. He, he didn't want to curse God, but if you think of the drift of the argument in the book of Job, 
He interacts with his friends, and, 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 and Job really wants to take on God a little bit. He challenges God a little bit. But then, all of a sudden, you know, chapter 38 and also following, we read a few passages then. But then when God begins to speak to Job, and he explains, well, Job, were you there when I created the heavens and the earth? You know, were you there when I made all those great creatures and how they do things? And did you, Were you there? Then, then all of a sudden, Job realizes he had been a little bit too arrogant. He had been lifting up his hearts and eyes to God and challenging him too much. And then Job also realized he had said too much. And so he humbled himself, recognizing he had occupied his mind with things too great and too marvelous for himself. He had failed to humbly admit that God's ways are way beyond our ways. Now, in terms of not occupying one's mind, not, not dwelling, you could say, on all the challenges and the problems that we face in life, despite the many promises of God towards us in Jesus Christ, you know, we, we see Paul relate some of that too in his letter to the Philippians, where he indicates that he too had learned not to lift up his heart or raise his eyes too high. Because... You know, Paul wrote that particular letter when he was sitting in prison, and he could have thought, too, well, I am the apostle of the Lord. I have to bring the gospel to the world. And, and now these things happen to me. Here in prison, I might lose my life. But you have those, those very wonderful words of the apostle Paul, where you see his childlike attitude, and he says that he learned to be content in all circumstances. Whether it was a time of plenty or a want, he learned to be content. He just entrusted himself like a child does to its parents. Now the childlike faith confessed in this opening verse, whether it is stated, where it is stated not to dwell on things too great and marvelous for us, you know, we, we can also hear this in, in one of the articles of our confessions. And I'm thinking here, especially the article about God's providence in Belgian Confession, Article 13. Beautiful article. It's always worthwhile to read that again for yourself afterwards, too. But, but there we confess, nothing happens without God's direction. So God is in charge of everything. And then it goes on to say, Yet God is not the author of the sins which are committed, nor can he be charged with them. For his power and goodness are so great and beyond understanding that he ordains and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner, even when devils and wicked men act unjustly. See, now, there that, that is the providence of God, really beyond our understanding. Things too wonderful for us. And then, and we hear the childlike faith in the way it continues. And as to his actions surpassing human understanding, we will not curiously inquire farther than our capacity allows us. But with the greatest humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, and we content ourselves that we are pupils of Christ, who only have to learn those things which he teaches us in his word, without transgressing these limits. You know, that, that, that's a confession of childlike trust. That something we can't understand how God's providence is there, our human responsibility, childlike trust. 
that even though we might want to argue with God, like Job would have thought like doing it, no, we're not going to do that, we're not going to go there. No. But we, we want to sing the words of Psalm 131, where we say we're not going to lift up our eyes and our heart in arrogant response to God, we're going to give it over to God. But now, this confession that we find in the opening part of our psalm, the bigger part of our psalm, is not quite finished. Because as it goes on, it shows that it is not easy to confess this, to be childlike in giving ourselves over to our Father's care. And this comes out in the comparison to a weaned child. Now, that's a kind of a maybe peculiar phrase. We don't speak that much anymore about weaning children. Although, of course, the process still takes place. It happens when when a mother stops nursing a child and the child has to move to, to solid, regular food, you could say. In Bible times, this would take place around age three or four. I think in our time, it probably takes place a bit younger. Not too many children are still being nursed at that age, but there comes that stage when, when the mother decides, well, that's enough nursing. I have to now move the child to, to a bottle and then other step, of course, you start going to solid food, you introduce those things gradually. And so eventually, the child is completely, you put an end to, to being nursed by a mother. And at a certain point, the child is able to drink from a regular cup. But many mothers know that this can be quite an ordeal. Not every child is just happy to stop being nursed and go to a bottle. No. Nope. It can resist it. You know, in some cases, they put up a pretty big battle. And so sometimes it becomes a battle of wills and, and there's a lot of unhappiness in the family because it brings tension all around between mother and child. And, and peace only returns when the child finally accepts the new reality. And when that happens, you know, before long, the whole battle is forgotten and the child also no longer wants to be nursed. No, it has gotten used to the new reality. And also it knows that, yes, if she, he or she will be fed. She can trust the mother that food will be there each day. That's the kind of situation, a bit of a struggle. Letting go of the, the nursing, being on regular food. But when that happens, peace returns. You know, and you'll see it later on in the book of praise. Then it paraphrases this particular psalm by speaking about that, that the child is lying in its mother's arms at rest, no longer fretting anxiously. The anxiety about not being fed is finally gone. And yet when you reflect on this whole process of weaning, it is an important process in the relationship between a child and its mother. Just think about it. From birth, you know, the child has relied on the mother for food. It needs were provided for. The child didn't know any other way. That's just the way it was. Had no doubt that it would happen, and the child didn't really have to give any thought to it either. Will I be fed? No. Mother looks after the child, everything is well. But the weaning process changes the relationship, because now, now the child, and if you think about it, especially if this happened around age three or four, when the child is becoming far more conscious of it, now, now the child has to consciously learn to trust that things will be okay, even though mom is no longer nursing him or her. But once that is established, then 
the child's anxieties are taken away. Mother is still there. The food is still there. It's just in a different way. But as we said, it was a challenging process. For some children, it goes easier than others. Still a process where you move from a relationship where everything is kind of automatic, the child didn't have to think about it for any, any way whatsoever, to a situation where now the child has to exercise trust that things will be okay. You know, this, this makes us think about our Lord Jesus' words. We mentioned those earlier that you had to again become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Had to become like a child. You had to learn to again think like a child, but this time it's different because now you have to do it consciously. You see, to become a child to enter the kingdom of heaven means to consciously place our trust in the Lord. And that's harder when you get older. You know, that way, even for the children in the congregation, you see it so often when they talk about their trust in the Lord, it's just there. They know the Lord is there. They know they can trust the Lord, and everything goes well. But then, then when you get older, you start to get the questions. You, you, you get older, you, you meet, and re realize more the realities of life. You learn more about our responsibilities. And as life progresses, you learn about its complexity. You learn about its uncertainty. You learn about its unfairness and injustices. And as we get older, then also we are more prone to fret, to be anxious. See, and then we have to tell ourselves consciously, consciously, it is okay. My Father in heaven, he will provide for us. The Lord Jesus told that to his disciples too. Don't be anxious and trust yourself to your heavenly Father. See, we, we must learn that he who has given us his only Son, Paul says that too. He will give us all things with him. And so we must learn. And see, this is conscious. When you get older, you're very self-conscious. You have to entrust yourself. You have to know that ultimately nothing will separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. But you see, as we get older, this is a very conscious thing. Faith is a conscious thing that we entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father. So we have to learn, as an adult, you could say, to think like a child. And that means don't pry too deeply into the work of God and ask all kinds of questions which we ultimately know we cannot answer. No, we just entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father. Because if we don't, as we get older and we want to figure things out, well, we're going to twist our mind into a pretzel. And we're going to tie ourselves into such a knot can't even figure out anymore what's going on because these things are beyond our understanding. They are too wonderful for us. Now, but with the words of this psalm, the Spirit shows us indeed how to confess it and that we should confess it and also it's acknowledged. It's not all that easy. Yet, when we finally are childlike, you could say, well, this ultimately is the work of the Spirit, but here it points to also to our involvement. We, we come to a place where our soul is quieted within us. And we confess a content, childlike faith. And then, then like Paul said in Philippians 2, then we experience the peace of God being with us, but also that the God of peace is with us. 
You see, when, when that sinks home, when we are childlike, then we can also exhort others to such a childlike faith. And that's our second point. As we turn to our second point, I mention again that, that this is a traveling song. And makes us realize that so far you could say, well, the words have been in the first person, and so it may have sounded a bit like a solo, but, but then we think, okay, it's a traveling song. You know, when they traveled to Jerusalem, uh, it wasn't just whenever family decided they would like to go. No, that was at certain times, three feasts. So they would have a mass of people going to Jerusalem. And yes, while you sing in the solo voice, it sounds like in, in the I, the first person, really, we're not singing alone. And also, we are not just singing to be heard by God, but also by our fellow travelers, especially those who may not feel like singing, perhaps because the burdens of life are pressing down so heavy upon them. Or, or perhaps they may not feel like singing because, well, they, they, their mind is occupied with things which are really beyond our understanding, and, and they, because of that, because they have, have really twisted their mind into a pretzel trying to make sense of God's ways, they're just a bundle of nerves. You know, you can think of what can happen sometimes when you try to figure out how does it all fit together? God is sovereign, and yet we are responsible. And then we think of evil in the world, and then you let your mind go on that, and before long, it just, it just goes, you go crazy. It's just too complicated. So, there are brothers and sisters, you know, in, in the whole group moving on towards the heavenly Jerusalem who will be struggling with those kind of issues. They're real struggles. And then, then rather than wanting to sing a song, they may even rather have their lives filled with sighing and lots of bitterness even in their hearts because maybe they've gone through some very difficult stages and developments in their life. You see, that's where it's so important that we might be singing in the first person, but we sing it together, and we sing to each other, and then we, then we help each other, and we encourage each other to hope in the Lord. That's the expression, hope in the Lord, O Israel. Now, it, it's a very brief expression here, but already Psalm 130 touched on that, because there it puts it a bit more fully. We'll hope to look at that psalm this afternoon. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with him is steadfast love. You see, there, there is a bit of an elaboration as to why we can hope in him. When we hear about that steadfast love, that's really God's covenant love. God being true to his promises. David, the author of this, Psalms could, of this psalm, could testify it because God had proved himself to his promises in his own life, it turned out eventually, yes, he did come to be king. And he did. Be, and, and also, he eventually received a son who would continue the line. So, but God, David knew God was true to his promises. But you think of it also for Israel in general, that even though there were many hard times and oppressions, the Lord time and again delivered them. In this New Testament church, we have even greater confidence to hope in the Lord as we know 
that he has fulfilled all his promises. He made already in paradise, and he reinforced them to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise to David. He has sent his son. God is true to his word. So, in that respect, the call to hope in him is really a call to each other to have that childlike faith and trust that God is true to his word and that he will continue to sustain us and provide for us as we keep on our journey to the heavenly Jerusalem until the day that we arrive safely. Now do note that this exhortation to hope is an exhortation from one traveler to another. The traveler who himself or herself will have experienced struggles and difficulties has learned to be childlike, to place that trust in God. It's important to keep in mind because we said earlier, you know, that there will be those who listen who are going through very difficult times and who may not feel like singing. And then they may say to a person who wants to, who encourages them to hope in the Lord, well, that's easy for you to say. You don't really know the kind of troubles that I'm dealing with. But then we have to think for a moment, well, how do we know what kind of troubles they're dealing with? You don't know that. Perhaps we have not seen anything external in their life, but what do we know has lived internally in their life? Things that no one knows about, but they have gone through all kinds of difficulties too. So, so don't just brush it off. No, think here is a fellow traveler. I don't know his or her particular burdens, but they have learned to place their trust in the Lord, and now they are encouraging me to do the same. And, and they're not sitting there in a position of superiority, but as a fellow traveler, a fellow struggler who says, come on, brother, sister, let's not give up. Keep hoping in the Lord. And so that's important to keep in mind, fellow travelers, fellow strugglers. And also it can happen at certain points that, that in love, we have to tell a fellow traveler who is kind of resisting the weaning process, you could say, who is, who is inclined to argue a little bit too much with God to say, brother, sister, why do you keep fighting it? Why do you try to figure things out that are beyond your comprehension, too wonderful for you? Just entrust yourself to your heavenly Father like a child. You know, you can't understand everything you can't understand even why God would love you to send his son, Jesus Christ. But don't, don't twist your mind into a pretzel over things that you cannot figure out. Too marvelous for you. Give it over, like Job finally did. You know, and when he did that, well, then he found peace. Then his soul was quieted, just like David. And so in Psalm 131... The Holy Spirit, through his servant David, has given us a beautiful psalm to confess childlike faith before God and to exhort one another to exercise childlike faith based on our own experience. Let us, let us do now exactly that by singing this song together. Amen. Amen.